Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and on this episode, we're doing something a little different. While at the 2019 Society for American Archaeology Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Chelsea and I went to a few of the poster sessions and recorded interviews with the authors of some of the posters. There was a wide variety of topics, interesting research, and interesting people at the sessions. I wish we were able to record them all. On this episode, you'll hear about Viking brooches to waterways at Angkor Wat. Make sure to check out the Women in Archaeology blog to view the posters from each interview. Annalisa Hebner at her poster, Alaskan Legacy Collections Outside Alaska, Challenges, Opportunities, and Potential. Thank you for talking with me, and please tell me about your research. What is your poster all about? Um, great. I'm happy to talk to you. So our uh, my poster here is about looking into where Alaskan collections made over 30 years ago are stored outside of Alaska. Um, I worked in Alaska for years, and one of the things that we were frequently asked, in Northwest Alaska especially, is what happened to such and such's collection? Or you're an archeologist, do you know this guy? What did he do with the stuff that he took? And um, I've never really been able to satisfactorily answer that question to people. And um, it doesn't look good, right? You wanna be able to say, oh, that's here, that's here, that's here. Exactly. So um, I'm at the Half and Refer Museum now working with a legacy collection much like this. So the collection that I worked with was made by Louis Giddings and Doug Anderson in the 1950s through the 1970s and has been at Brown ever since then. And um, it's been kind of in the same storage condition as it, as it was when it came out of the field. Oh since man. Then. So that's pretty rough. It is, it's rough. It's rough. Um, and one of our real big goals with the project that I'm working on now is to inventory, recatalog, rehouse, and um, publicize the collection. So, um, they are uh, collections from Northwest Alaska, specifically Onion Portage and Cape Cruisenstern. So they're two really big collections in Alaskan prehistory. They're really well known, but they are kind of understudied because they've been at Brown and people don't necessarily know that that's where they are. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, they're at Brown, and if you want to work with Western Northwest Alaska stuff, come to Brown. So like some <laughs> come great reach out. PhD dissertations that could be done on these. So collections. many things, and the other thing too is that. Um, working through the collection has helped us kind of identify where gaps in the knowledge are. Mm -hmm. So we did a, um, in kind of one of the panels, I talk a little bit about it, but we did a, um, we did like a collection history where I looked at how the collection was used at Brown. So like we looked at its exhibition history over time, how it was used in classes and coursework. And what we found was that, um, for better or for worse, it was mostly presented as like the work product of archeologists rather than the, you know, material culture of Inupiat people and their ancestors. So I'm hoping that the next kind of phase of this collection is looking at it from a descendant community perspective rather than a archaeological perspective, if that makes any sense. So um, yeah, the, the poster is basically just like what we're doing, what are some of the problems with working with a legacy collection from outside, from outside Alaska, which is like it's really far away. Like Alaska and Rhode Island are so <laughs> far away. It's like comparatively speaking. <laughs> yeah, it's like a full full day of travel, if not two days of travel, plus 
I mean, it costs like $3,000 to get back and forth. Like, it's, oh it's really, really difficult. So we've got that. It's an old collection that's been poorly curated. So it's also like we're losing information every day and you have to like fix that. So digitizing a catalog, getting the information out of... So Doug's still around and he's really great. He's really supportive of the project, but getting information out of him too, because we have this kind of... With a lot of legacy collections, I think it's a reliance on informal knowledge. Oh yeah, and informal Once knowledge. Once that person's gone, yeah, he's gone. And where he's, does it go? He's in his 80s. Like, oh no. So he's really sharp and he's really invested, but he's also in his 80s and he wants to be not doing this too. Like he wants yeah. to like hang out with his wife and like chill out, and have I mean, a nice life. Just like do archaeology for until he drops. Every day. Like, no. <laughs> so um, kind of getting that information out of him, working with him to build a history of what he did. Um, so that we can get a, a really full picture and I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to turn it into a good example of what to do with a legacy collection. Okay. Um, and then once it's in better shape because we've got like masking tape and artifacts and yeah. old floral foam and but I'd like to work um, with communities in Northwest Alaska to figure out what they want out of a collection like this. Uh-huh. So um, whether that's working through digital technology, 3D printing, 3D imaging, like building collection apps, like any of that kind of stuff to, though this collection will probably never be fully repatriated or given back, it's in NAGPRA compliance, so it doesn't need to be, it's not, yeah, so it's not, that's already, we've already done that, that's all done, so we're not in like the scary repatriation zone, but what is meaningful for communities rather than, you know, here's a box full of your stuff enjoy Ta-da. and it's really like 255 <laughs> boxes of oh stuff. God. It's a huge collection. It's over 250,000 objects. So it oh is gosh. just like tons of stuff. And we want people to be able to use it and access it in a way that makes sense and is not like a crazy trip to Rhode Island or right. a banker's box mailed to you kind of thing. <laughs> so that's what we're working towards. That's wonderful. And how did you stumble upon this collection in the first place? Um, it is a really, it's actually a really well-known collection. Um, so these are two really famous archaeological sites. Um, so they're they're well-known that way, but um, through the work of my boss and um, the National Park Service, they built together a three-year cooperative agreement to do this work. So it was really them oh, trying cool. to like find a way to do this money and get or get money to do this project and I just got hired because I worked in Northwest Alaska <laughs> and um, was excited about the potential and I've done legacy collection management stuff before. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And from this collection, is there any thing in particular that you think is like particularly unique that you like yes. more than anything else? Yes. Okay, that's a hard question because there's so much. One of your favorites. So the one that I'm working on right now is there are these Ipiatek etched pebbles, um, and there are these really faintly etched drawings on pebbles, and they're really hard to see, but with like RTI imagery and like really good photogrammetry, we can actually get good photos of these objects that you can't even see with your naked eye. So we've got all of these things that like you can kind of see when they're wet that they're an artifact, but you couldn't really see when they're dry and we're starting to take yeah. photos of them in a way that we can actually use them and compare them and do analysis on them. So that's really exciting. And then the other thing that I get really stoked about is that most of what's been written about the site is the hunting technology, mm-hmm. but it's got all the household stuff. And, and that hasn't been worked on. It hasn't yet. been worked on. And I, my thesis research was on engendering the archaeological record. And so Good for you. doing um, 
looking at household goods, looking at, we've got like seal oil lamps that are like, you know, predominantly tended and cared for by women. And there's a lot of meaning that can come out of this collection in that regard. So that stuff gets me really, really excited. And like being able to be around like the product of women's work is really cool. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me and yeah, look forward to hearing more about your research. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> This is Emily Long. I'm at the poster session at the SAAs, and I'm standing in front of the poster called A Preliminary Exploration and Studying Pueblo II Community Formation Through Time by Laura Brumbaugh. And she's graciously um, accepted to talk to me a little bit about her research. So please tell me about your poster. So essentially what I wanted to look at was the transition between the Pueblo I and Pueblo II time periods in the Mesa Verde region of the United States Southwest. And there are a lot of factors that go into community formation in any time period. But I, what I wanted to look at was the advent of Chaco and influence on the landscape in the Mesa Verde area. And that happens at the advent of the Pueblo II time period. So I wanted to look at sites during the Pueblo I time period to see if there were any patterns or indicators that I could find which could potentially tell about the future of that site, whether it would be depopulated during Pueblo I or whether it would have that Pueblo II component to it. And so I did this in this little first step by looking at uh, traded pottery wares, specifically from the San Juan region of Utah, traded into this region in Colorado that I looked at. And so I looked at specifically three red wares, Deadman's Black on Red, Abajo Red on Orange, and Bluff Black on Red, to see if there were any differences in the proportions of red ware at individual sites from the two different time periods. Okay. And what I found is that with this small of a sample size that I used, None of the results were statistically significant, but there were lots of hints in the study that there might be a relationship between the amount of bluff black on red pottery that the sites were trading and whether or not they had that Pueblo II component. And what it actually looks like is that maybe the sites uh, that had that Chacoan component in the Pueblo II time period actually traded less with those redware producing settlements in Utah. Why do you think that is? Um, essentially, I'm not really sure because of how preliminary this research oh, for is, sure, for sure. Um, but one of the thoughts is that potentially having a trade relationship uh, with the society to the west might have made settlement less likely to trade or have any interactions with the Chacoan communities to the south. Um, that's just one possibility. There are so many ways to interpret this research, and that's what I hope to do when I start grad school, is to you know, just look at this in many different ways. And are you hoping to look at any specific sites in particular um, for your graduate research or any area in particular that you're like, oh, if I can hone in on this one region, that'd be amazing? Uh, I really like looking at uh, southwestern Colorado specifically. It's in the very northern part of, the so of what is considered the southwest. Oh, yes. So uh, it's, it's interesting because they have lots of different interactions with uh, different sorts of cultural uh, trends, like the redware from Utah, different Chacoan components. The Mesa, the Mesa Verde time period in Pueblo III is especially fascinating. So just the changes that this area went through over time, I think, are very interesting. And so I'd like to focus specifically in, on that area and great house communities in that, in that area. I think that would be really interesting information. And I feel like um, this type of pottery is gorgeous, for one thing. Oh, it and it's, it's so beautiful. unique. And there's so much we can yes. learn from it. Um, and are you looking forward to graduate school? Yes, yes, I'm very excited about it. That's wonderful. And yes. this is one final random question of all these types of pottery that you are studying. Which one is your favorite? I have to say, uh, Deadman's Black on Red. It's a the red's really deep and it's got a nice shine to it. It's a Pueblo II period ceramic mostly, but it's really beautiful. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about your research.
Thank you very much. I'm at the poster presentation, and I am standing in front of a poster entitled The Distribution and Characterization of Agriculture Terraces on Cerro de la Mesa, Mesa, Ahumada. Ahumada, Mexico. And this is created by Eunice Villasenor Eribe, Christopher T. Morehart, and Andreas G. Meje Ramos. And I am here with Eunice, and she's going to be telling me a little bit about the research that's being presented in the poster. So, Eunice, what can you tell me about your research? Uh, so my research is really trying to focus on um, agricultural production and agricultural terracing and the site of Los Mogotes and the Cerro de la Mesa Humada in, in the northern basin of Mexico. I'm interested in learning more about the distribution and characteristics of these terraces and how they might have impacted the productivity for this uh, mesa and the population for this mesa and the site of Los Mogotes. Okay. So uh, first we mapped these terraces to determine you know, how many of them there were. We did find that there were 1,352 terraces and then we wanted to find out more about these terraces. So we looked to see if we could determine what the slope percent was for these terraces mm -hmm. and the aspect and how these might have affected them. Uh, so we did find that the terraces did have a 13.2 uh, average slope and that the aspect was predominantly easterly. And once we looked into this information, we found it quite interesting because uh, the terraces, although they had a 13.2% average slope, there was quite a range that was from zero to like 40%. Which, is, how on earth would you build anything on that, is beyond me. Exactly. So we were looking at previous research that kind of said that uh, there was more of a 15% was the max. Uh, so we looked at ours because we, we really found so many terraces were above this 15%. Um, so going off of our, our mean that we had, we kind of went up one standard deviation and we went up to a 20% because we found that this was a little bit more accurate and might include some of these terraces that might not be included in other research. Okay. So then we use this to determine productivity estimates and we base this off of um, maize productivity for upland rainfed zones, uh, which is research that was conducted by Hearth and presented in 2000 and Sanders in 1976. Mm -hmm. And we also know that this is a semi-arid zone and uh, Parsons 2008 actually really provides a lot of um, information about the rainfall for this. Okay. Uh, so going off of this, we assume that you know there wasn't really more than one annual harvest of maize going on here. And we also determined that uh, there is 405 hectare acres of potentially, potentially cultivable land. Mm -hmm. um, so using these estimates, uh, we kind of came up with a high and low calorie intake. And depending on these, we found that previous population estimates um, for this area, which were 750 to 1500, might not be completely um, sustainable. Okay. Uh, just if we were just going off of maize, uh, because yeah. our numbers were, you know, they did fall within that range, but it was kind of a little. You'd have some starving times if it was yes. to that extent. <laughs> yes. And I mean, we are also going with the maize productivity. We also are using modern maize, so that might impact it as well. Okay. Um, but the big thing that we're finding here is that, you know, just going off of maize, this might have not been. Uh, sustainable for this this area and it might be this might mean that they were focusing on different types of subsistence sources or there might have been some trade going on as well okay our future work really hopes to 
um, excavate more of these terraces to find out more about you know the construction and the chronology and we really find want to find out what was actually grown on these terraces uh, we also hope to uh, do further productivity calculations to find out more about um, what was the sustainable yield for this area that's really cool and I can see how this research could be applicable to other areas as well that does I mean really anywhere that has terracing mm -hmm. so I can imagine just the idea of like productivity yields and being able to estimate from their population and whatnot is really useful yes I think so because I'm really interested in finding out how these different agricultural methods impacted people and how they made their lives maybe easier or maybe a little harder because we know it's hard to construct them oh very much so that is really cool. And when you've been doing all your work with the terracing, was there anything out there that was like your favorite kind of terrace or type of feature that is associated with the terraces out in that area? Well, there is actually one pretty neat thing that we found was that um, some of the terraces were residential and some of them were agricultural. And the ones that we found that were residential tended to be better constructed in a way because mm -hmm. they were, you know, still pretty stable. When we excavated them, they okay. they had. Uh, they were just better preserved and then the agricultural ones were sloping so I kind of think that might mean that it's possible that they had in mind that these agricultural ones were really needing to be maintained more often okay. and the residential ones were kind of something that you wanted to last for a really long time okay so it's like one's your everyday kind of terrace and the other ones your pretty terrace yes <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty neat <laughs> that is really cool thank you so much for sharing your research with me no problem and I'm looking at the poster, Shell Midden Zoo Archaeology and Paleoecology at Guaymoratero. I will have somebody else pronounce this for me. The Lagoon in Honduras by Leslie Rita Myers, Ashley Sharp, Wilmer Elver, Maximo Jimenez, and Whitney Goodwin. And I'm here with Leslie, and she's going to tell me a little bit about the poster, the research that they've been doing. And so if you could give me a general overview, what is the poster about in the research that you guys conducted? Sure, thanks. Uh, so this is Gaia Moreto Lagoon in Honduras, and we're looking at a shell mound that's about four and a half meters high. So it's a really, for me at least, a really giant shell mound. Um, it has really incredible faunal preservation, both the shell and the bones themselves. Uh, so we're kind of trying to get an idea for how people have used this lagoon over the last couple of thousand years. And in the long run, hoping to look at sort of what that means for human management of the lagoon over long periods of time, and also how the lagoon is different today than it was back then. Um, those are kind of the long-term goals. Okay. So right now we're just getting an idea for what was here. What were these people eating? How were they using the lagoon? How were they using the rest of their landscape? Um, and what we're finding is a ton of use of the lagoon. There's an enormous amount of shellfish from the lagoon, also kind of from the near coastal area, intertidal area. Uh, we're also finding lots of marine mammals, manatee specifically. Oh, wow. so, yeah, well, Showing up, their bones are showing up. Um, I don't know that we've really looked at cut marks a whole lot, but presumably being eaten. Um, a little bit of sea turtle, a whole bunch of birds like cormorants and other things that would have lived on the lagoon. But we're also finding a lot of white-tailed deer, iguana, um, animals that would have been more terrestrial. Okay. Um, so it's very much a mix. I, it's very likely going to end up being heavy on the lagoon, but they're mm -hmm. certainly using all sorts of different resources available to them. Um, and the other thing that makes the site really interesting is combining the faunal and ecological information with some of the really cool social and cultural and political stuff going on. And so uh, Whitney Goodwin, who is also an author on this paper, is looking at how these people who are kind of on the edge of the Maya world mm -hmm. uh, manipulate their identity through time, through the so-called Maya collapse, and 
um, that kind of thing. So it's kind of a great combination of being able to look at um, the social and the political and how that interacts with the ecological and the subsistence. Mm-hmm. And what were your guys' general conclusions so far <laughs> well, from we, the site? Yeah, we don't have a ton of conclusions at the moment. Or um, we're seeing, hypotheses. Yes, we're definitely <laughs> seeing a lot of change through time. Um, so, for instance, there's a lot more manatee near the bottom, um, a lot less towards the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really have a good environmental record to compare that to. So we can't okay. say exactly what's causing those changes. Um, so that's kind of the next step, is to start trying to figure out why. Um, why we see changes and you know whether that's related to human behavior or climate change or some of both. Um, so that's what we'll, we're hoping to find out in the future. Wonderful. And are there any other things you're hoping to find besides just the <laughs> paleoecological side yeah. for your next field season? Are there any other research goals you're hoping to Sure. Achieve? So one of the things that I'm really excited about in this project is that we're working a lot with the um, descendant community here, the Pesh people, um, who are quite interested. Uh, they were sort of displaced from this area and are moving back. Uh, so they have this disconnect and are you know kind of interested in figuring out what this site can tell them about their own ecological history, about their own sort of role in this mm-hmm. ecosystem. Um, and so working with them is one of the things that makes this site really, really special. That's really cool that you're able to combine not only um, the paleoecology, zooarchaeology, all these wonderful aspects of the site, but with the community archaeology as well. Yes, absolutely. And I hope that we do that more um, mm-hmm. in the future as a, as a group of environmental archaeologists. I think that's something that's really important and that I hope we're getting better at. I agree. I've always think there's always more room for improvement with community archaeology. So it's awesome that you guys are engaging with that as well. Yeah, wonderful. And just just for fun, what was your favorite thing that you found from that area? <laughs> um, what, at least one of. Well, your favorite okay. Things. As far as just like cool artifacts go, um, there's actually a little picture there of a pottery lug with a bird head on it mm-hmm. that I just think is really cute. It is pretty adorable. <laughs> kind um, of looking at you like, Yay! I know, it's like a very happy eagle or something. We're not really sure what bird it is, but um, I actually wanted it to be a sea turtle, but I'm pretty sure now it's a bird, um, but it does seem very happy. So. Um, I think actually that's, that's another thing that we're interested in, is figuring out, you know, what, not beyond just being a place where people went fishing, mm-hmm. right, what role did this lagoon play in their lives? And based on the iconography, it definitely seems to have been important to them. That is wonderful. Thank you, Lizzie, for yeah. talking to me. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the SAAs. Yeah, thanks. You too. Let's take a quick break. During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account? And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting on our blog. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. I'm looking at the poster, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? An investigation of the climatic variations and the resulting changes to social and environmental dynamics at Angkor Wat, Cambodia. And this is by Melissa Dodds and O. Navarro Farr and K. Alley. Um, those are initials. Um, those are also the professors of archaeology at Worcester and a professor of earth sciences at Worcester. And I'm here with Melissa Dodd. She is a current senior at the College of Worcester. She's going to tell me a little bit about her research. 
Hi, thank you. So I double majored in geology and archaeology at the College of Worcester. So my um, large goal in this project was to show the interrelated nature of earth sciences and anthropology, um, specifically during the occupation of Angkor Wat. And so my big question was whether or not the Temple of Angkor Wat was um, built specifically to mitigate drought and or flooding. Um, so I used the Monsoon Asia Drought Atlas, which took um, about 300 tree ring studies um, and tree chronologies to reconstruct um, paleoclimate data um, throughout Southeast Asia um, during summer months. And so um, one of my figures demonstrates um, a prolonged period of drought in Cambodia followed by heavy rain seasons. And so what this ended up doing to the infrastructure um, was resulted in a lot of damage at Angkor Wat. Um, they had a lot of sandstone canals, like a network of water management infrastructure, hydraulic channels. Um, and so during the dry seasons um, and the extensive drought periods during the summer, it would start to crack and break all the infrastructure. Oh man, even in the, even if the canals had already, like, so they weren't enough to actually mitigate the water. Yeah, so it just like, um, Actually, one of the big issues with the way they're constructed is that the, um, the landscape is naturally meandering. The streams are naturally meandering streams, and the canals were built vertically across the landscape. So that increased um, flow velocity of water, which um, increased the amount of water they were able to disperse in the floodplain, but then heightened the erosion. So then during the flooding periods, it would wash all of the sediment down the network of canals and clog up all of the drainage channels, all of the irrigation networks. Um, so that required continuous upkeep by the population, and especially as the population was growing rapidly and was sustained almost primarily on rice in a floodplain, they needed so much water to maintain crop cultivation to sustain the population, but then there's continuous damage to their network. So what I did when I actually visited Cambodia in person Ooh, that's was... lucky. Yeah, so um, from Copeland funding from the college, um, I traveled to Cambodia over winter break, and I took GPS points at um, sites that I thought were of significant either cultural or religious um, uh, value, and then compared that to um, a digital elevation model um, to look at the elevation of the terrain and see if there was a conscious effort to build particular sites at higher elevations to protect them during flooding events. Okay. Um, so then that was part of um, my data was looking at where um, different features were built um, in the landscape and then also tying in iconographic um, uh, relations to um, the Hindu culture um, that was Angkor Wat was built as a Hindu temple, um, and so then you see um, different water iconography and like boat paintings on the temple walls um, at the reservoirs, which are used to store fresh water during the dry seasons. Okay. You see um, carvings of lotus flowers and different ties to that, so you see the social ties to water and how it's important to their culture, their everyday life, the temple, but then also how important like the infrastructure was to their landscape and using. Um, the flat floodplain to the best advantage to mitigate their natural resources during times of really low water availability and then too much water during flooding events and just showing that um, interrelated nature of earth sciences and anthropology mm -hmm. and how water was both revered by the society in a cultural sense but also sort of feared in a sense in like the damage it could do to their um, civilization. That makes sense and I mean Angkor Wat's a really good 
case study for that because yeah. I mean you have such complex architecture there's a mm -hmm. lot to choose from yeah so I initially was hoping to compare this to to call um, in Mesoamerica since they both are in semi-tropical environments and actually had similar development of infrastructure um, so that was a direction I was hoping to take it in but um, I thought Angkor Wat was a really interesting location because the use of LIDAR studies are really new here, or just um, all of the remote sensing data has happened in the like, past two decades, maybe. Yeah. And so there's been significant advancement in remote sensing technology, which has been really helpful to deduce um, settlement patterns of the population, population estimations, um, where like different water and hydraulic features were built. And so it's been a really nice case study, I think, to showcase different cross-disciplinary um, investigation at this area. That's really cool. And so what do you hope, to, are you hoping to take this topic further at some point? Or do you think you're like, I've done, I've done enough with Anchor One, I'm ready for something new? Um, I think it could be interesting to spread this further in Southeast Asia because like Angkor Wat is just one of hundreds of temples in the area so I think that this is an area where you have endless infrastructure to look at and I you know had a week in Cambodia and only visited like only took points at Angkor Wat so I think like given the opportunity there's so much more work that can be done here and especially in preserving the site and preserving the history even like given um, modern climate changes could be an interesting sort of thing um, to look at versus like ancient um, climate changes oh, sure. and now and just like this sort of mid, uh, management of natural resources. Right on. This is fascinating research and just for fun while you were at Anchor Wat, what was one of your the, your favorite things that you saw while you were there? Oh my gosh I think my favorite thing was seeing sort of like um, the relation of like modern life tied in with like the ancient history here mm -hmm. and especially like after the occupation of the Khmer Rouge like how the population has like lived through such like a tumultuous time in the country but still managed to hang on to their past and like their history and their culture and I think like that's just really cool to see um, the people now um, still really really proud of their history and you see that like tie between like antiquity and like modern day life here. Well, thank you so much for sharing your research with me. Thank you so much. The next poster is by Ellie Howell and Dr. Nick Cardulius, her advisor, in the Program of Archaeology at the College of Worcester. The poster is called Signing in the Margins, Manifestations of Professional Identity and Creative Agency in Viking Age Oval Brooches. Essentially what I'm looking at is Viking Age oval brooches, which were a pretty ubiquitous um, uh, item of ornamentation which were worn by women uh, throughout the Viking Age. Um, I'm looking at a specific type of brooch which emerged after a period of uh, like very, very regional variation, um, wherein you would walk down the street, you'd see a woman wearing a brooch, and you kind of immediately know what workshop it came from, or at least what region it came from. Um, However, as is the case, you know, throughout time, um, people started wanting to wear what their neighbors were wearing. So this kind of international style emerged, um, which is essentially almost identical um, from a distance. And I'm looking to prove that um, through these, uh, you know, side panels, specific iconography and the side panels associated with, um, with a strong association with um, this kind of stylistic interpretation of a particular panel on the diagonal of the band, um, that artisans were kind of asserting their 
professional identity in a way um, by creating these trademarks which would have been specific to a particular, either a region or I believe a particular workshop. I haven't been able to identify which workshops yet because, you know, um, site reports are hard to come by. Right, um, and in the foreign language. Oh, especially in foreign language. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but um, hopefully, you know, in the future, that would be a really interesting study to see if you can identify where these brooches were coming from. If there was, if there was a regional association with this trademark or if it was actually specific artisans or specific workshops. Um, That's super interesting, and I was talking to Ellie Howell from the College of Worcester at SEA 2019. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for part two of the SAA poster session interviews. Special thanks to Leslie Reeder Myers, Annalisa Hepner, Laura Brumbaugh, Melissa Dodds, Eunice Villasenor Aribe, and Ellie Howell. Check out their posters on the Women in Archaeology blog at womeninarchaeology.com. And check out other podcasts, episodes, and blog posts that are also on the blog. Our intro and outro music is by Tristan Elliott. You can contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topic requests for future episodes, or if you'd like to come on the podcast, we'd love to have you. Our Twitter is at WomenArchies, and you can also follow our group on Facebook. Thanks for listening! Mm-hmm.